Welcome to the Dayspring Audio Library, the teaching ministry of Pastor Daniel Rehoff. Thanks for joining us. We hope this message will have a powerful impact on your life. So sit back and enjoy today's time in the Word. Well, it's been about a year since I've been here. Good to see you again. And at my age, it's good to be seen anywhere. But um, I do appreciate the opportunity to be with you on this special day. Uh, As you can tell from the slide that I'm going to be speaking on why Calvinism equals legalistic Judaism. And um, I want to, if you have a Bible, and I'm hoping you do, you probably got it committed to memory, but in case you don't, If you'll look at the book of Acts in chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, and it's it's talking about a problem that the church had, and um, maybe the first council they had where they brought in all the big guns, you know, Paul and Peter and all the rest of them to the church there in Jerusalem, and the question was, do we or do we not have to keep the law to be saved? And so um, there were some saying that you had to be circumcised. Another one said you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. Well, really what that is, is that is lordship salvation. That's making Christ the Lord or the master of your life in order to be saved. And many people today will tell you that you have to turn from your sins or repent of sins to be saved, or you've got to commit your life to Christ to be saved. So both of those require you to do something. You've got to stop being bad and start being good. And so if you've got to turn from your sins, you're going to have to turn from all of them. Because which ones don't you have to turn from? If you have to turn from them, then you should have to turn from all. If you have to make Christ the Lord and the master of your life, they say, well, he has either got to be Lord of all or not Lord at all. So there's a, a problem. But let's just pretend that it is required. What? does that lead to, which is what I want to show you. Here in the book of Acts in chapter 15, in verse 1, it makes a statement, and certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you can't even get saved. Then there's others that were teaching you have to keep the law to stay saved. So you see there in verse 5, but there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So it was a a meeting about do you have to turn from your sins and do you have to commit your life to Christ? Or for them, commit your life to the law in order to be saved. So these things were happening in that time. And um, so there were certain men said you had to do this to get saved, and then you had to do the other in order to stay saved. So that's why when you have to keep the law to be saved, it's not like keeping one law. You have to do it continually from now on until the day you die. And so it's a strange thing. So let's just pretend that you did have to do those things. Look what it leads to. And this is where a lot of people are in a lot of churches. You're fortunate that you go to a church that teaches you to 
clear gospel message. So you know you're saved by grace, you're kept by faith and grace. But if it is true that you had to do all those things, then that means you must persevere by continuously doing good works to your own satisfaction. Because the one that's got to judge whether or not you're really saved or not is going to be you. And so it automatically means that you have to get out a magnifying glass and begin to inspect your life. We call those fruit inspectors. They got to find the fruit. You had to stop sinning, so that better not show up. And you got to start living godly, and that better show up. Or you have to come to the conclusion you weren't really saved. So it leads to confusion. And it puts people under a law they have to stop and do. And it has nothing to do with what Christ did. It has to do with what they do. So that you must try to prove that you are really saved. And due to your own good conscience, consider yourself still saved by your own unbiased judgment with great confidence in your own opinion that you will maintain this free salvation by grace until the final end. So who becomes the judge whether or not you're really saved? If you have to keep the law or do all these good works to prove you're saved, who's going to tell you that you are or are not? This is why you have people always judging somebody, trying to say, well, I know she's saved because. Well, I know he's not saved because. So we're looking at their life trying to make this decision, this judgment. But we ask for that. Now get this. If we preach the gospel to every creature to tell them that God loves them when he really doesn't, would that be a lie? In other words, a Calvinist believes that here's the world, but let's just say for the sake of illustration, uh, those people sitting over there, I'm God. I choose to save all of those over there. I'm sorry. But aren't you thankful that I chose them at least? See, I did save them, and it was by grace. I didn't choose to save you. And I'm not a respecter of persons. You might think, well, that doesn't sound very fair. Why should they get to go and not me? So you would consider God is unjust. So God says that he must be justified whatever he does. And I'll show you that. So if, if we go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody, well, if I tell you that you can know you have eternal life, that'd be a lie because you can't know it. Only them, because those are when I chose. And because I chose to save them, I'm going to give them the faith to believe. So when I give them the faith to believe, they will believe because they will have no option. They must believe because I programmed it that way. So therefore, these will be saved. Now, if that's true, see, Jesus Christ doesn't have to die for you. He only has to die for them. So they call it limited atonement. So there's, there's a lot of heresy being taught today in a lot of churches where people believe what I'm telling you right now. I believe it's wrong. So the second point I have up there, if we preach the gospel to every creature and tell them that Christ died for them when he really didn't, well, would that be a lie? If I came in here and I was a Calvinist 
And I told you, God has chosen some to believe and the others can't believe because I didn't choose them. I didn't choose them. And I gave them the faith to trust, but I didn't give it to you. So therefore, don't get bent out of shape. Uh, just accept the fact that you're going to go to hell forever and, um, and just that's the way it is. What, can you live with that? You think that's fair? I don't think you would. So it would be a lie. Hearing the gospel would be bad news if the good news was really a lie. It's like telling somebody, you won the lottery. Millions of dollars, you just won the lottery. But you really didn't. I'm lying to you. Would you like that? Christ loves you, but not really. Jesus died and paid for all your sins, but he really didn't. You see, that's not what the Bible teaches. And that's why that is not true. So the gospel of Christ reflects every attribute of God. Therefore, all doctrinal errors are attacks upon the character of God. So whenever they say something like that, that's an attack upon God. Because God is not like that. The Bible says God so loved the world, and what they're saying is God doesn't really love the world. But he does. When they say Christ didn't die for certain people's sins, well, see, that's a lie. That's calling God a liar. Because God really did send his son to pay for the sins of the whole world. So, God so loved the world, he sent his son. That's what the Bible says. God says that Christ loved his father by giving himself as a payment for the whole world. Every believer was commanded, that knew the Lord, commanded to go into all the world and preach the forgiveness of sins. Well, how can you go up to every person and tell them God is going to forgive you of all your sins if he really is not going to do it? He didn't really mean it. That's, that'd be a lie. And in Luke 24, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins. You see, if God forgave you of all your sins, you'd have eternal security. Christ forgave me of all my sins when I trusted Christ as my Savior. But he couldn't forgive me of my sins until he paid for all my sins. So he can forgive me because he paid for all of them. So from the time I'm born to the time I die, he made a payment for all of my sins. So the reason that I can't go to hell is because I, I don't have any sins to pay for. Christ paid for my sins. Man's responsibility is to believe. So can we believe what God says? In John chapter 6, verse 47, notice where it is man's responsibility to respond to the gospel. We're responsible to preach the gospel to every creature it's man's responsibility to either believe it or he can reject it. But it's not, it's not accurate to say that God has already predetermined who he's going to save because that is not true. In the book of John chapter 7 and verse 37, get this. He says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood in Christ and said, if any man. That shows you it's a man's choice. If any man... Thirst, let him come unto me and drink. So anybody that wants... Now, they're saying, well, God only lets certain people thirst and other people that can't thirst. Well, then, why even say it? 
if these people over here have been chosen by God from the foundation of the world, are they really in danger of hellfire? If God is predetermined, they're going to heaven whenever they die. Are they really in danger of going to hell? Then why would they need to be saved at all? Why preach the gospel to them, all, everybody, just so we can get that few people over there? Because God says, narrow is the way. Broad is the way of destruction. So that means that probably there's more people going to be in hell than is going to be in heaven. Now, is that God's fault? It is if God can only save a few, and that's all he loved. So that is not what the Bible says. So he says, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life, he that believeth. So that is our choice. So when you and I believe on Christ, means we believe he paid for our sins, God gives to us everlasting life. And if it's everlasting life, then it would uh, last forever. Everlasting life means this. It means that it is irrevocable. If I trust Christ as my Savior, he gives to me irrevocable life. In other words, it can never be taken away. It can't be altered. It can't be changed. Because it's everlasting. That's what the word means. So he says in John 7, 38, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And that's why that is so important. But the rest of that verse, when he says that as many that thirst can come to him and he will give them living water, which they that believe on him should receive. Because they have trusted Christ as Savior, they will have the Holy Spirit. That is a promise that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit when in chapter 7 he mentioned it. Which means if they get saved today, they'll be saved when the Holy Spirit is given. That is security. So he says in John chapter 5 verse 40, look what Jesus said. And you will not come to me that you might have life. So, I mean, you could have life, but you won't come to me that you might have eternal life. So, the responsibility is upon individuals. Christ paid for all sin. And so, it's a shame that there are people that are teaching people that God only loves certain people, that he only gave faith to certain people, and that he is only going to save certain people. That means that those who he didn't choose haven't got a chance. Haven't got a chance. So in Matthew, in chapter 23, and verse 37, this is what Jesus said. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, stoneth them which are sin of thee. Now get this statement. How often would I have gathered thy children together? How often I would have. Even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wing, and the last three words says, ye would not. So he blames them for not responding to what the prophets had told the children of Israel. So they knew it, but they killed the prophets. You see, there is a great responsibility put upon individuals to make the right choice. And so, therefore, when God made the world and created the heavens and the earth, that is God's evidence that he exists. 
You say, well, how do I know there's a God? Look at the evidence. I've been elk hunting a lot of years, 18 out of 20 years in Colorado. I think I felt like I'd climbed every mountain. But when I see tracks, that lets me know elk or deer or a fox, wolf, bear, and I've seen all those tracks up in those mountains. But that's the evidence that I didn't see them. That's why I never shot many of them. But anyway, there is the evidence. So God says he lighteth every man that cometh into the world in John chapter 1. It means he's given to every man some evidence. And we need to believe the evidence because that will lead us to the source of the evidence, which will be the Lord. So there's a great responsibility on individuals to make the right decision. Calvinism is a name that's given to a, uh, a little body of statements that I disagree with. Calvinism teaches that God does not love everyone. That means there's some people. God. So these people over here say they believe in Calvinism. The question would be is, how do you know you're one of the chosen ones? Prove it. What is your evidence? You say, well, God loves us, but he didn't love the rest. Okay, prove that God loves you. How do you know God loves you? What's your evidence? They don't have any evidence. Well, Christ only had to die for those that were chosen. Okay, how do you know you were chosen? And how do you know Christ paid for your sins? You see, but if I believe God loves everybody, then it's easy for me to say, I was included. If Christ paid for all the sins of the world, then it's easy for me to believe he paid for mine. You see, but whenever it's selected, you can't prove that you are. So the only way that they will be able to prove that they're really one of the chosen ones is going to have to be by the evidence that they turn from their sins and Christ is the Lord and the Master of every area of their life. It means they don't sin anymore and they don't make a mistake the other way because it has to be absolute. It can't be graded in a percentage. It has to be total. Turn from your sins means all sin. Doesn't mean just the big ones or just the little ones or most of them. It has to be, you have to turn from all of your sins. Or turning from your sin means nothing. Dedicating your life to the Lord. Is that 100%, 70%, 50%, 30%? What percentage is it? See, they don't know. But who's going to determine? So they have to look at their life. They got to start examining themselves to see whether or not, am I really one of the chosen ones? So by looking at their life, they have to look at the sin in my life or the holiness in my life. And so therefore, they have placed themselves under a law. They're underneath, they're condemning themselves. Now they have to work and try to prove that they're really saved by how they live. And that becomes a burdensome in itself. And so therefore, it leads to a lot of frustration, a lot of despair. You ought to see some of the letters I get from people that are coming out of Calvinism. Well, anyway, Calvinism teaches God only gives the new birth to those that were pre-chosen. 
You see, he only had to save those and give them the new birth to the ones that um, he pre-chose before the foundations of the world. That is heresy. Now, as we're moving right along, Calvinism teaches that man is not responsible because he's dead and unresponsive. Therefore, God must save him before he can respond. That's dumb. God has to save him so that he can have the faith to believe. So God has to regenerate him and save him and give him eternal life before God actually has to save him by him accepting it. You say they don't take that. Yes, they do. That's why it's, it's so stupid. Now, if you've got some thinking power, you can see that don't make any sense at all. Of course it doesn't. Because they say, see, you can't get saved because they were all dead. All of y'all are dead. So you can't respond to truth. That's not found in the Bible anywhere. I'm going to speak about that tonight a little bit. So you've got to understand. So I detect the thread of Calvinism projecting out of most churches. And I get a chance to preach in a lot of churches. And I've been in a lot of conferences. I mean, for a long time. But the thing is, most of the people, they don't know it, but it's just like poison. It's poison. And it kills the will of the individual to witness. You see, if they really believed they were chosen, therefore they couldn't go to hell. So the rest of y'all, if there are some that God chose among you, they don't really have to reach you because you're going to go to heaven anyway. Why should I have to dedicate my life, learn a language, travel across the ocean, go to another land, and try to tell people how to go to heaven when it doesn't really matter? Because the one that can't go to heaven, it ain't going to matter. And the one that's going to heaven, they're already going anyway. Whatever will be, will be. You ever heard that before? Uh, so I am compelled to explain why I see this as a works gospel and stay away from Calvinism. And so it's easy sometimes, believe it or not, you can go to a church and many times the preacher will be teaching that stuff but leave the word Calvinism out of it. They just teach the teaching. Because little by little, without you knowing it, you'd be surprised how you will come to the place where you might even judge whether somebody's saved or lost by how they're living. True? You should be surprised. You, you might even question whether or not you're really saved because you still see sin in your life. And there's times and times you don't want to go to church. Oh, no. <clears throat> and you don't want to witness and you don't want to read the Bible and you don't want to pray. So I must not really be saved. So they give an altar call and there you go again, getting saved again. And again, and again. You know, the verse in the Bible says, you must be born again and again and again and again and again. No. You know that song that we used to always sing? Only behave. Only behave. All things are probable. Only behave. No, that's not the way it goes. So here's the Calvinistic, humanistic reasoning. Man is totally depraved. He cannot respond to God unless God takes the initiative and first gives to man the faith to believe. If this is true, it is only reasonable to assume that only those to whom God gives faith can truly ever be saved. Well, if that is true, 
then it also means that God had to pick or choose whom he would give this faith in order that they might believe. So God, being God, knowing the end from the beginning, could, would, and did determine, predestinate, who would be saved. And God didn't do that. See, God has chosen to save all of those who choose to be saved. I'll repeat that. God has chosen to save all those who choose by their own will to be saved. God doesn't pull strings on you. He didn't make you trust Christ as your Savior. Be thankful that you did because it's the smartest decision you've ever made. And you'll realize how much more important it is when you get ready to die. See, right now you think you're going to live forever. Well, wait till you get 80. You realize that uh, maybe not too long. It won't be long. So, we're all going to, I told you, I'm going to live till I die. Then I'm going to live forever. Ain't that something? I'm going to live till I die, and then I'm going to live forever. So, if these ifs are true, it stands to reason that Christ would only have to die for those he chose to save. If that was true, then it also makes sense that God demands to believe must be irresistible because God has determined it to happen. Where is really the, I guess you could say, the determination on a, a soul winner's part to go soul winning if it really won't make any difference? If the lost man is really lost and can never be saved, but there's another group that God has predetermined before the foundation of the world, why do we have to tell them just like till they die and they get in heaven? Why would they have to believe? Why would they have to hear the gospel at all? And if the other ones are not going to have a chance, why preach the gospel to anybody? You see, I think like this. I got a mind. I can reason. If they can reason, I can reason but they can't seem to reason the way that I reason. So, how does one prove that he is definitely one of the elect or chosen to believe? You must become a fruit inspector to see if there is a changed life from all sin and total commitment to Christ. You say, well, people don't preach that. I mean, churches don't, they don't really tell the people they got to turn from sin to be saved, do they? I mean, do they really say that? Have you ever heard preachers tell you've got to commit your life to Christ in order to be saved? Now, after you're saved, should I as a child of God depart from iniquity? Well, yes. Should I as a child of God commit my life to Christ? Yes, because I've got a life to commit now. See, the lost man doesn't have it. They're trying to get a lost man to promise to do something that we as believers haven't done yet. You must become a fruit inspector and see if there's a change in your life. And uh, surprise, this demands a changed life as the proof or the evidence of a genuine salvation with God. If there is no change, one must by progressive reasoning come to the conclusion that if there is no change in one's life, he must doubt his salvation. Or if there is a break in obedience, it would and should produce doubts that one was ever saved to start with. Have you ever met anybody who has questions and doubts about their salvation? 
And when they question or doubt their salvation, what are they usually referring to? What Christ did or what they're doing or not doing? They're becoming a judge in their own life by looking at their works, looking at their life. So the focus is not about what Christ did for me. It's about what I'm doing. And if I'm not living right, then I must not really be saved. So it automatically causes questions and doubts in a person's mind. Therefore, that's why they teach the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. That's the, uh, the fifth letter, you know, in the little word tulip. That's the devil's favorite flower. And tulip. But the P is for the perseverance. You've got to persevere. That has just put you under the law like we just read in the book of Acts. And that's what the legalistic Judaizers were trying to do to the believers. So you've got to keep the law. It's the same thing as some preacher or some missionary or evangelist telling people they've got to be underneath the repent of sins and you've got to be underneath this commit your life. And if you don't do it, sign you're not saved. You have to do that stay saved. That's works for salvation. Because your focus is not upon what Christ did for me. It's upon what I do for him. So therefore, I judge whether or not I'm really saved. Genuine Christian. That's why you hear some people say, well, if he's really saved. You know, saved used to mean saved. But now if you're really saved. He's a real believer. But the real and the truly and the genuine all refers to your works. Because if you're a real Christian, that means you didn't just believe, you also, you're living it. It sounds like it ought to be that way, but it isn't that way. It leads to frustration and self-condemnation. It puts you under a burden like a yoke that you can't bear. Since perseverance of the saints is a must for self-evident, their works becomes the proof of one's salvation. This is why they must turn every verse for service into a verse that proves salvation. Well, this is what is called a by works righteousness that Paul warns about. So he says, when a man cannot be sure he is saved because he simply trusted Christ, but he can because of his life, then what's he looking to and what's he trusting in as the evidence that he's saved? What Christ did or what he's doing? He's looking at his life, his works. That is not the Bible. This view is a totally logical, humanistic reasoning approach that is impossible to harmonize with the gospel of grace. You must toe the mark as a legalistic Judaizer, or you must deny the sin in your life. So that means if you really got to stop all this and do all of this, you have to deceive yourself into thinking, I am doing that. Or you have to be honest as I'm not doing that. And if I'm not doing that, then I either must not be saved or I question or doubt my salvation because, you see, it's got to be one way or the other. Or they begin to deny that they are living a sinful life. If you have to go to church, how often? You have to give money exactly how much. What if you didn't give the exact amount you're supposed to give. And who's telling you what church you had to go to to go to the right one? And if you have to pray, how long? How long? How sincere? 
What if you fall asleep? That's a good time to get, catch up on some sleep. If you can't sleep, you just start praying. You'd be surprised how fast you can go. If it is a lie, then it calls God a liar. So there can be no assurance, no joy, no peace because there's been no security. Now get this word, verse. This is an awesome verse. And this is in Romans in chapter 11 and verse 6. And if by grace, if we are saved by grace, then is this no more of works. In other words, if you're saved by grace today, it means no more of works. No more today, no more works, no more works tomorrow, and no more work for the rest of your life. No more. If it's by grace, no more works. It means if it is by grace, it has to be by grace today and forever grace. You can't add it on later. There can't be no backloading the gospel. But if it is of works, then it is no more grace. In other words, if it's salvation is by works, it cannot ever be by grace. It has to always be by works. If that's what you're trusting in to get you to heaven is your good works, then you'll have to have those good works tomorrow, the next day, forever. It can never be by grace because you can never add the two together because they contradict each other. Work means work, and grace means grace. It's free. So is a man saved by grace or is a man saved by works? There's a verse in the Bible that says that. So in Ephesians 1.12, now get this, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. First trusted in Christ. In Ephesians 1.13, it explains even that more. In whom, Christ, you also trusted when? After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed. After that ye believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Get the order. Calvinism is wrong. Not even close to being right. But they'll come across as being very intellectual. They'll quote you the Hebrew and the Greek and all the rest of it. And you say, oh, what if he's me, I will swallow. No. Calvinism is a lie. If Calvinism is true, then get this statement. Then God did absolutely nothing to save those who went to hell. That's us. See, he only chose them. If Calvinism is true, God did absolutely nothing for you and I. They were unloved, unwanted, and live without purpose. Then evolution is true, God isn't real, and we're just the highest form of some evolutionary animal. This would mean that we were created without value, died without hope, and meant to be eternally alone and doomed for punishment without light. Their destiny was totally determined before you were ever born because God never chose to save you, but he let you be born and had no hope for you. Now, some people believe that, and they preach that. And I've had enough debates that I, I despise the teaching. So, look at this verse, or statement. In people's minds, 
we have and been born with an uncanny sense of fairness, of justice, of right and wrong. As it says in Romans chapter 2, either to accuse or to excuse somebody reveals personal judgment of our own. That's not right. That's not fair because we're weighing the evidence. How could a holy, just, righteous, compassionate, and loving God ever justify his action to the believer and to the unbeliever? If Calvinism is true, there can be no justification for God's actions because God says in his word that he is not a respecter of persons. It means he can't choose them over you. His love and his grace will not allow him to do such. He can't do that because that would not be just to a just God. In Romans 3, 4, he says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mighteth overcome when thou art judged. You see, you'd be surprised, even on a daily basis, how we judge God. God, why in the world do you let that happen to me? If you really loved me, you wouldn't have let this happen. And Lord, I prayed, and you didn't do a thing about it, and blah, 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 blah. You'd be surprised how we judge God. Not saying we don't have a little ability there to do that. If God has determined who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, what can we be responsible for? If whatever will be, will be, why pray if nothing can be changed? Why witness if it isn't going to make a better difference? Why do they need the gospel if they cannot go to hell? Were those that God chose ever in danger of hellfire? To me, if I read the scriptures right, and if Calvinism has a, a little bit of truth to it, I'd have to come to the conclusion that they really were never in danger of going to hell. But Jesus says he came into the world to seek and to save that which was, that's us. Sorry. Christ came to save the ones that were lost. So I would believe that we are really genuinely lost and need a Savior. And because we believe that, that's why we do what we do. Now, you probably never heard these verses before. Ephesians chapter 2, two of my favorite verses in the Bible. For by grace are you saved. If it's by grace today, it has to be grace tomorrow and the next day until the day you die. It's got to be always grace. It can never be by works. It can never be a work later added to grace or it annuls grace. So he says, not of yourselves. I wonder what that means. So in case people don't get it, he explained it in the next verse. It means not of works. In other words, how you live does not determine your destination. Not of works lest any man should boast. So your work cannot be your evidence that proves that you're saved. Because God says all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. Why refer and depend upon and try to use as evidence your filthy rags as the proof you're saved instead of the blood of Christ, which is precious blood. You know how I know I'm saved? God says I am. That's all the evidence I need. God said so. 
What is the evidence of my faith? He said, he that believeth on me hath, present tense, hath everlasting life. The evidence of my faith is I can declare and state with a surety, I have everlasting life. If I can't say I have everlasting life, it's because I don't believe it. But if I believe it, then I got it. Do you believe it? Then you got it. There isn't a need for any other evidence, and never will be, till one day we get to heaven. I know the Word of God does not change, and that's the best news to me in all the world. So let's say, for example, here you are this morning, and I don't know some of you, but isn't it true you've heard almost all your life, Christ died on the cross, paid for all the sins of the world. You've heard that. Now, if he paid for all the sins of the world, why did he do that? Because he didn't want us to pay for them. So that means that he loved us so much, he'd rather die than live without us. So Christ paid for our sins, came back from the dead, and the only thing he wanted us to do, the only thing he wanted us to do is to believe he did it for us. So when I believe he did it for me, he put that payment to my account. It's free. I didn't have to make God any promises or pledges. That was the gift of God. We are very interested in you and your spiritual growth. If you want to contact Dayspring for prayer or more information, you can reach us at 262-404-5092 or on the web at dayspringbaptist.com. Thanks for listening.